ghosts now as spectral. But in the medieval ages, the ghosts were often solid flesh, a revenant. They can cause harm, kill others. They could only be stopped when they are completely destroyed. To a medieval mind, the returning dead weren't such a wild proposition. Every good Christian would rise at the Last Judgment, the bad potentially rising a little earlier. Caesarius of Heisterbach, a monk of a German Cistercian monastery in the 13th century, is best known as an author and compiler of a book of hagiography, the book of the lives of saints. He wrote that there were four different types of death. First, you could live a good life and die a good death. A good life was spent in service to God, to your Lord and to your family. A good death was a tame death, one you knew was coming and could prepare for. Or you could live a good life and die a bad death. A bad death was violent, sudden, ripping you too soon from this world, so you were unwilling or unable to find your way to the next. Someone could live a bad life and die a good death. You didn't live an honourable life, but you died calmly in your bed. Last and worst of all, you could live a bad life and die a bad death. If this happened, perhaps you would rise again as a revenant. The revenant was born not just of Christian faith, but pagan fear, carried to the shores of Britain by invaders who took spoils and left stories. Even the bravest Viking warrior feared and was haunted by what hides out there in the dark. The tale of the ghostly Draugr, an undead creature from Scandinavian folktales. The Draugr could look just like the one you had loved and lost, but they'd come back changed, stronger, smarter and more violent. They lived in their graves, often guarding the treasure buried with them. They had the ability to enter the dreams of the living, often leaving a terrifying gift behind to show they had visited. The Revenant embodied many fears, pestilence, violence, expulsion from the graces of God. Imagine you approach an ancient church. As you push open the carved wooden doors, worn smooth with many years of prayer, a silent hush settles. The air smells spiced with incense, stained glass windows glimmer. On the wall is the image of the three dead kings. On the left, three living figures, their clothes lustrous and their faces calm and serene. On the right, three skeletons, their bones ancient and weathered. Their image reminds us that beneath the outer refinery, we are all just bones in the end. This memento mori is the reminder of death. After the Middle Ages, these reminders fell out of fashion many of them covered up, hidden behind layers of whitewash, or concealed by stacks of furniture. We can't escape the knowledge of death. It's not just a reminder of death, but a celebration of life, a reminder that we don't know what comes after. In today's episode, let's explore some locations of Scotland. They're reminders of death in the ghosts and legends of old. In an area of parkland within a suburb to the south of the city centre sits the ruins of Craig Miller Castle, a magnificent 14th century fortified tower house that is frequently missed by visitors 
despite it being just a few miles from the city centre. The central tower houses the earliest part of the castle and dates back to 1374 when King Robert II gifted the lands of Craigmiller to the Prestons, a notable local family that consisted of several sheriffs of Edinburgh. In the 16th century, the castle played an important role in history, starting during the period known as the Rough Wooing, when the English attempted to secure the marriage of the infant Mary Stuart, the future Mary Queen of Scots, and Henry VIII's son, Edward by force. The castle was attacked and partially destroyed by the invading English forces, who ultimately lost out to the French when an agreement was reached for Mary to be betrothed to Francis II of France. The connection between Craig Miller and Queen Mary continued in 1566, when the seriously ill Queen was taken to the castle for her own protection. Mary's husband, Francis, had died in 1560, shortly after they were married, and Mary had returned to Scotland where she met and married her second husband, Lord Darnley. The marriage was an unhappy one, with Darnley openly showing his displeasure at not being considered the Queen's equal. As he became more distant from his wife, her opponent seized on the opportunity and convinced him that the Queen's personal secretary, who she shared a close bond with, was responsible for the marriage breakdown. On the 9th of March 1566, a group of Mary's enemies broke into her private chambers at the palace of Holyrood House, aided by Darnley and murdered Riccio, her secretary, in front of the heavily pregnant Queen. Mary was held hostage, but with Darnley starting to lose his nerve, she was able to escape. Although she survived the ordeal, she was deeply affected by it, and her health began to suffer. To prevent the risk of further attack, she was moved from the city centre to Craig Miller to recover, where Sir Simon Preston had raised an army of 500 armed men to protect her. It was during this period that a group of the Queen's advisers met. They'd realised Darnley was weak and easily influenced, and agreed that he needed to be removed. Mary is said to have expressed concern on the effect a divorce may have had on both her honour and the legitimacy of their son. And so what was essentially an assassination pact, known as the Craig Miller Bond, was agreed upon. Shortly after Darnley fell unwell with either smallpox or syphilis, and after a brief spell in Glasgow, he moved to the old provost's house at the Kirk of Fields, on the outskirts of Edinburgh to convalesce. In the early hours of the morning of 10th of February, 1567, the city was rocked by a massive explosion. It completely destroyed the old provost's house. Barrels of gunpowder had been placed under Lord Darnley's chamber. Plot, it seems, he became aware of before they were ignited, as his body along with that of his servant, were found in the garden of the property. Both were strangled, with no signs of having been in the explosion, indicating they'd been captured while trying to escape, and killed. Despite Craig Miller Castle being the place where his father's fate had been sealed, Mary's son, James VI, also spent time there in 1589, continuing the connection with the Stuart family. By this time the castle had been remodelled and extended to form an additional wing and two sets of curtain walls added, forming inner and outer courtyards. In 1660 the Preston family sold the castle and grounds to Sir John Gilmore, 
who again remodelled it to create a more comforting family home. And it remained in the ownership of the Gilmores until 1946, when it was placed under the care of Historic Scotland. By this time the castle was extensively ruined, having not been lived in for almost 200 years. Craig Miller Castle is said to be haunted by two spirits, the first one being a white lady. Many places in Scotland lay claim to white lady ghosts, and they're frequently connected to a loss of a loved one, or some form of betrayal, leading to some speculation that the spectre at Craig Miller may be that of none other than Mary Queen of Scots, returning to the place where she dealt with the mental torment of her husband's betrayal, where his assassination was planned, and where she spent the late stages of her pregnancy. The White Lady has been witnessed moving around the castle, particularly at one of the stairs, and seems to be a residual spirit that is one that is seen to simply go about activities as they did in life, almost like a recording constantly replaying, with no interaction with the living. The other spectre is said to be a man in full military dress, witnessed walking towards the castle gates, before vanishing. This spirit had lain dormant for some time, but it would seem that the construction of a housing development known as Nid Remains in the 1930s once again disturbed it. On May the 5th, 1935, the Sunday Post newspaper ran a story titled Edinburgh Ghost with Spurs Seen Gliding Over Fields Near Castle. The report tells that since building work started, ghost is walking again, gliding towards the castle and then vanishing within the ruins. It had first been spotted around a year prior to the paper running the story, and at that time a number of ghost hunts were organised, but the spirit always vanished when approached. Sighting stopped soon after, but the report states it had once again been spotted, walking along an old approach road to the castle. Witnesses stated that the figure wore a long hooded cloak, and the face was hidden by what appeared to be long untidy hair, although the eyes were visible and described as menacing. The ghost was also noted to be wearing riding boots with spurs. Locals again arranged ghost hunts. All but one found nothing, with a successful hunt witnessing a shadowy figure moving within the castle before vanishing at a doorway. The ghosts of Craig Miller are not the only locations associated with the story of Mary Queen of Scots. At the Palace of Holyrood House, which stands at the foot of the Royal Mile, a red bloodstain marks the spot where Riccio was murdered. According to the legend, servants at the time of the killing would scrub the floor clean, only for the stain to reappear the following morning. There are even some claims that the floorboards were replaced, only for the supernatural stain to return soon after. It was eventually decided it was a pointless exercise to try to remove it, and the stains can still be seen today, with a memorial plaque marking the spot. The ghost of Riccio has also been witnessed moving around the former chambers of Mary Queen of Scots, and a shadowy figure hiding in the corners that is only ever seen out of the corner of the eye and vanishes when directly looked at. This is believed to be the guilt-ridden ghost of Lord Darnley, returning to the spot where he committed the act of betrayal that would ultimately lead to his own downfall. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the ghost of Queen Mary is also said to walk the corridors of her former residence. These are not the only spectres associated with the palace. 
which was originally founded as a monastery in 1128 and remains the Queen's official residence in Scotland. A naked, bold, elderly woman is said to roam the grounds of the palace, reputed to be the ghost of Agnes Sampson. Agnes resided in Netherkeith, East Lothian, and was known as the wise wife from Keith, a term normally associated with a herbal healer. These old traditions were something the Christian faith was trying to eradicate. Agnes was suddenly drawn into one of the country's most famous witch trials in 1590. King James VI, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, had set sailing in spring to Denmark, where he was to marry Anne, the daughter of Frederick II, King of Denmark and Norway. On their return journey, they were besieged with seemingly unnaturally strong storms that forced them to take shelter for several weeks in Norway. With the belief and fear of witchcraft being strong in Denmark, the admirals of the Danish fleet that accompanied the Scottish ships blamed the storms on sorcery, and a witch hunt commenced. Before long, several women had been accused, and under torture they confessed to raising the storms and sending devils to try to sink the ships. Upon hearing of the trials, King James decided to hold his own, and the first major persecution against witchcraft, which would later be known as the North Berwick Witch Trials, commenced. Over 70 people were accused, all confessing under torture to meeting with the devil in a North Berwick churchyard and plotting to kill the king. Agnes Sampson was named as one of the ringleaders of the witches. She suffered horrific torture that included being stripped naked and shaved of all body hair to try to find the devil's mark being tied in a standing position to the wall of her cell, with a device known as the witch's bridle, comprising of four iron spikes forced into her mouth, so that the prongs pressed against her tongue and her cheeks, making it impossible to speak, and ensuring sleep deprivation. A rope was tied around her head, that was twisted and tightened to also crush her skull. It was during a torture session in the presence of King James, when the rope around her head had been twisted for over an hour, Agnes gave in and confessed to being a witch. While the confession brought the torture to an end, it also brought her life to an end, and Agnes Sampson was sent to be burned at the stake as a witch, with the only small mercy being she was strangled to death prior to the fire being lit. It seems, however, that the spirit of Agnes followed King James back to his residence in Edinburgh at the Palace of Holyrood House. Every now and then, someone with a shovel unearths a tragic history long since buried. Of all the locations with a buried past, the city of Edinburgh is rather unique. As the city population grew, Edinburgh built both upwards as well as digging down into the rock below, carving out tunnels and cellars three or four layers deep. As the city expanded in the north, five bridges were constructed to link the old and the new parts of the city together. The main feature of these bridges were their stone archways that became filled with vaults. Initially used for prisoners, the Edinburgh vaults over the years were used for many purposes. They became places of dirty tenements and home to businesses such as brothels and illegal distilleries. These places were dark, wet and cold. The final destination for most of the city rubbish and human waste. Disease and illness was rampant here. The vaults and corridors were bathed only in shadows and around every corner was crime, danger and death. 
Here many of the poorest of the city were forced to live, many of the vaults housing ten or more inside. In 1824 and 1861, many of the vaults were destroyed by fire. Out of the ashes they would be rebuilt. As the 19th century came to an end, the need to live in these places began to draw to a close, the corners and tunnels of the vaults being buried or forgotten, leaving very little of the underground behind. But it was still there, for nothing ever really goes away, not even this shadowy world beneath the city. When the vaults were excavated two centuries later, numerous artefacts were uncovered from buttons to pipes, cooking utensils and toys. If stories are true, there is something else lurking behind. After those excavations were completed in the 90s, numerous tours would take place. Tourists would visit and experience hands grabbing them from behind. Others captured strange anomalies in photographs or experienced unexplained cold spots. For some, they would feel mysterious hands attempting to pick their pockets. One mother and her young daughter went on such a tour, where at one point they were ushered into a dark vault to hear a story. The mother would feel her daughter's small hand reach up and clutch her hand tightly. She would squeeze back for reassurance. When the story was over, lights from torches began to illuminate the darkness. The mother looked down to ask her daughter what she thought of the story. A daughter whose hand she had felt only seconds before was not there. Her daughter was in fact in the far corner of the vault, leaving the question, whose hand had she held in hers? The mysteries of Edinburgh don't just lurk below. It can sometimes be in plain sight. Castles were a physical representation of power. They were majestic and grand and impenetrable. Made to last, many still exist today. They could be tools of oppression or barriers to defend against outsiders, armour plating to protect and serve those seeking shelter. Every castle bears a story of spilled blood, of mysteries to solve, and of lives ended. In some castles, the echoes of past deeds are still with us today. Scotland has its own share of troubled castles. Edinburgh Castle, like most castles, served as a prison for political enemies and prisoners. In one tale, legend tells of a man who attempted to escape the confines of his castle cell by hiding in a barrow of manure. Unfortunately, it was dumped over the ledge of the port wall, where he drowned in the waters below. Visitors to the spot often report the strange sensation of being pushed by unseen hands and the pungent smell of manure in the air. Tunnels and dungeons of the lower castle have played host to numerous unexplainable encounters and experiences from disembodied heavy breathing, the sound of hammers striking, knocking or the painful moans breaking the silence. The activity reported in the lower sections are associated with that of Lady Janet Douglas, who in 1528 found herself accused of witchcraft by King James I. Her servants and family were captured and imprisoned in the cells of the castle, where one by one they were tortured to extract false confessions and provide testimony against Lady Janet Douglas. Lady Douglas was herself in these confinements until she was found guilty of the crimes charged against her and burnt to death. The strong walls of a castle can act like a prison holding in centuries of suffering, tragedy and death. Glam's Castle, the setting for Shakespeare's play Macbeth, is no different. Glam's Castle was built in the village of the same name 
on the site of the supposed murder of King Malcolm II during the 11th century. By the 13th century, it had been passed to the Lyon family, who had fallen on good times thanks to John Lyon marrying the daughter of the king. In the 1840s, rumours began to circulate that the family were hiding a secret. Sir Walter Scott, the famous playwright, poet and novelist, would publish in 1830 an account of a visit he made to the castle in 1790, highlighting the mystery of a secret room, the source of which would go on to entertain and engage high society for two consecutive generations. The possibility of a secret room was not without merit. Records of the castle show small chambers built into the walls, and given the walls were up to 16 feet in depth, it would be easy to conceal such a chamber. In 1850, the current Earl and his wife of Glans would host a celebration that would see the men early one morning go off hunting, leaving their bored wives behind. That morning, they took it upon themselves to try and uncover this secret chamber. Up and down they searched, tying white rags in the windows of all the rooms they found. When finished, they gathered outside to look, where they saw one solitary window without a rag in the tower. Try as they might, the women could not find this room. In 1903, Charles Bowes Lyon, grandfather to Queen Elizabeth II, said, If you could even guess the nature of this castle's secret, you would get down on your knees and thank God it was not yours. According to a correspondent to the journal Notes and Queries, writing in 1908, the mystery was told to the present writer some 60 years ago, when he was a boy, it made a great impression on him. The story was and is that in the castle of Glam's is a secret chamber. In this chamber is confined a monster, who is the rightful heir to the title and property, but who is so unrepresentable that it is necessary to keep him out of sight and out of possession. It was commonly believed that he must have been a member of the Bowes Lion family, and suggested that he was the firstborn of the eleventh Earl, or the heir of the Earl's son, Lord Glam's. Supporters of the theory point to Douglas Scott's peerage, which records that after Lord Glam's married Charlotte Grimstead in 1820, their first child was a son, born, and died the 21st of October 1821. Speculation arose that this child and heir, known as the Monster of Glam's, was born deformed and hidden away to save face. These buildings by nature and design were places of safety and refuge a fortified home from the dangers lurking in the shadows outside. Instead, many of these stone fortresses have become more than shelter for the nobility. They've collected stories of tragedy, intrigue, oppression and murder. The undeniable result is a legacy of dark history that casts its shadow today. Echoes calling out to be heard, reminders of the dead. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. If you like this podcast, there's a number of things you can do. Come and join us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Spread the word about us with friends and family. Leave a review on our website or other podcast platforms. To support the podcast further, why not head on over to join us on Patreon, where you can sign up to gain a library of additional material and recordings. And in the process, know you're helping the podcast continue to put out more content. On a final note, if you haven't read it already, then you can find my piece, In Search of the Medieval, 
in volume three of The Feminine Macabre over on spookeats.com or via Amazon. Links to the book will also be in the episode description. Thank you everyone for your amazing support. Thank you.